I'm sure that uh, you probably don't know this. <clears throat> a lot of you have sat in the church and under preaching for all of your lives. If we totaled up all the sermons that you all have heard, it would rank in the hundreds of thousands, I'm certain. And you probably don't realize that um, every preacher every Sunday would really love it if at the end of the sermon the congregation fell down on its knees and repented of its sin and repented of everything that was going wrong in their lives and in the lives of the world and turned over a new leaf and made real changes in their life for, that lasted for the rest of their life. We would like to see that every Sunday. The truth is, <laughs> that doesn't happen very often. It happens once in a while, but it doesn't happen very often, and that doesn't take anything away from the value of the sermon. I mean, you probably don't remember what you ate a week ago Saturday for supper, but you needed it. So that's the other side of the story. It's also true that in general, preachers don't get a lot of response from their sermons. Once in a while, uh, we get a little bit. And actually, in all my years of Trinity, um, the most response that I've gotten from a sermon series was two years ago. When I did in Advent a series on the book of Lamentations, some of you may remember that. There is a tradition in the church that during Advent, the book of Lamentations is a book of study. It doesn't happen very often because everybody's heading towards Christmas and we don't want any sadness around. Um, but I did a sermon series on Lamentations and I got the most, it was actually mostly pushback. Why are we doing Lamentations every Sunday? It's Christmas, and we don't come to church to get depressed. And uh, I come here to hear a happy, hopeful message. My week is hard enough, and I just don't, I just don't want to hear Lamentations on Sunday morning. And I pointed out then, and I'll point out again, and I believe it's true, that we Western Christians have great trouble knowing how to lament, especially in the church. And that partly comes because most of us are well-educated, healthy, wealthy, have our lives in general together. We don't really suffer like the rest of the world suffers. We certainly don't suffer like the people that wrote Lamentations were suffering. We have our issues, and they're big, and they're important, and they're serious. I understand all that. I'm not um, doing away with any of that. But in general, we're not used to lamentation or sorrow or pain in our lives. And we haven't been trained to do it. We haven't had examples, especially in our own uh, tradition. And most sermons in uh, the West, of Amer of the, West uh, the West, but particularly in America, are really designed to give us tips and advice as to how to live a better life. And Jesus is kind of mentioned somewhere in there because he can help you along if you need it. But basically, it's how to have a happy marriage, how to succeed in your life, and how to do all those things. And that's kind of what we talk about. Uh, we're in a very strange period in the life of Trinity, as all of you are aware. Um, and it's, it's tinged with lament, just the way it is. We're completing our ministry here as a church. We've, of course, had the, had the Harrington tragedy come upon us again in the last couple of months. And then someone requested that we 
that I preach a sermon on Lamentations 3, 22 to 26, those some, the verses somewhere there, uh, which are this great is thy faithfulness verses. And you can't really do that without looking at the lament part of it. It's, it's just not responsible preaching to just pull that out and, and hold a happy, clappy sermon without dealing with the lament that's around it. You know that the book of Lamentations was written probably by the prophet Jeremiah in a time when the Jewish people, and particularly the city of Jerusalem, had just been devastated and destroyed by the Babylonians. There was very little left standing. Hardly two stones upon one another. Men, women, children, animals had been killed. The place had been burned. The crops were gone. Everything that they'd put their lives and hearts and souls into for centuries lay in ruins. And these people lamented, and Jeremiah led them in lament with words like these. These are the very first words of the book. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss. They wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Or listen to this, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. And then the very last verse. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old, unless perhaps you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. That's the last verse, the last sentence of this book. From beginning to end, it's this lament. It's not it begins with lament and then it turns and the rest is happy clappy. Begins with lament, it ends with lament, and right in the middle. Oh no, before I get there, it's naming the despair, the loss, the pain, the grief, the evil. And Wendell Berry puts it this way he wrote a poem, the poem of difficult hope, and I used this two years ago. We are living in the most destructive and hence the most stupid period in the history of our species. The list of its undeniable, undeniable abominations is long and hardly bearable. 
And these abominations are not balanced or compensated or atoned for by the list, easily reiterated, of our scientific achievements. The distinguishing characteristic of absolute despair is silence. There is a world of difference between the person who, believing that there is no use, says so to himself or to no one, and the person who says it aloud to someone else. A person who marks his trail into despair remembers hope and thus has hope, even if only a little. Wendell Berry is saying, if we say nothing about our despair, we will never get out of it. And another commentator, I'm pulling again from four, three years, two years ago. To name evil is to begin to resist it, to begin the healing process, to recover and rediscover one's human dignity. It's from a commentary on Lamentations. If you cannot or will not name your despair, whatever it is, there's no healing path. If you ignore it, pretend it isn't there. There's no way you can get through it. That's what Lamentations teaches us. That's what the people who know how to lament teach it. They're not lamenting in order to despair. They're lamenting because it's the first step towards healing. And lamenting is recognizing that whatever it is, is sincerely and deeply broken. And right in the middle, at the very center of this book of Lamentations, where the beginning is full of lamentation and the end is full of lamentations, there are these verses, and they're the verses of the day, and hopefully they'll be projected on the screen. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. See, right here it is. Remember it. Don't just ignore it. Don't pretend it didn't happen. Don't pretend that the good is so good that we should never speak about the evil. No, we remember the affliction, the wanderings, the wormwood, and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, a conscious choice. And therefore, see the progression here? I, I look at what's gone wrong, and I stop. Say, okay, here's what's really bad. And I, and I, I look somewhere else. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Jeremiah chooses to remember. He chooses to remember. And you can almost see him making a list. What am I trying to remember? What am I remembering? And here's the list. It's a pretty simple list. The steadfast love of the Lord 
And this steadfast love, this is the nerdy part, is this Hebrew word hesed, which occurs like 250 times in the New Testament and literally means steadfast love. That's what it means. In all the, all the depth of the word love, it's usually used for God, almost always used for God's love for us, hesed, his faithfulness. The steadfast faithfulness and love of the Lord never ceases. Over these years, we've been counting the alls in the, in the Bible. This is like an all except a negative. When does the steadfast love of the Lord ever cease? Never. And I'm a literalist at that point. I never it never ceases. It's the first thing that Jeremiah remembers. And this is the poetry part of it. His mercies, there it is again, never. <laughs> when do his mercies come to an end? Never. And I'm a literalist here too. They just never come to an end. They are new. Which morning? How many of them? Every one. I'm a literalist there too. Never, never, every. I don't know how much more clear you can get. Is there a place you can go where the steadfast love of the Lord is not there? No. It's impossible. Is there a place you can go where the mercy of the Lord isn't there? No. Is there a morning that doesn't have God's mercy in it? No. It just doesn't. And then Jeremiah looks up. He's been talking about. And now he looks up. He says, that's you up there. You remember Psalm 23, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside the still waters. I'm going to mess this up, I know. And then we get to the point, yea, though I walk through, so he's talking about God. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, not because he is with me. You are with me. See the shift into the personal. Now we're dealing with a person. We're not dealing with forces of nature. We're dealing with a person. Great is your faithfulness. You are a person. And you make choices. And you create. And you sustain. And you work through all of everything. You're in. There's a Dutch word for you. Get you in the spirit. Um, let me get back here. He's in everything. Present always. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. And this portion idea in the Old Testament goes back to when the people of Israel were in the land, were moving into the land of Canaan, and the land was being divided. You may remember this, or otherwise a little bit for the nerds. The tribe of Levite was the tribe of the priests. And all the other tribes had their patches of land, the pieces of land which they could farm. The Levites didn't. Their service was to be in the temple. 
And so the Israelites, when they brought their sacrifices and their gifts to the temple, they were partly designed for God, but also partly designed to keep the tribe of Levi alive, because they didn't farm. And that was called their portion. So every Israelite who read this verse thought about that. My portion, what's going to keep me alive? It's not my own toil, my own farming, my own ability to make tools or do whatever I do to earn a living. It's God who's my portion. Right in the middle of this lamentation, what's going to keep me alive? God himself. Therefore, I will hope in him. Therefore, I will hope in him. This word hope has a particular meaning, in the, particularly in the Old Testament in Hebrew, and it actually means to wait. It doesn't mean spring into action. It means to wait. There's this famous story, you probably know it, of when Israel was uh, liberated from Egypt, the Passover. Uh, they came out of Egypt and they, they walked, I don't know how long they walked, and they came to the Red Sea, and the Red Sea was before them. And behind them was the army of Pharaoh who were coming to bring them back. And they were what, what we would say between a rock and a hard place. And they didn't know what to do, and they were pretty scared. And God said to Moses, Wait. It's the same idea. Wait and see what I'm going to do. So Jeremiah looks up from his lament and looks at God and his faithfulness and his compassion and his mercy and his presence and his life-giving energy and power and says, I'm going to stand here with one foot in the lament and one foot in the presence of God, God's space meeting our space. This is where God's space meets our space. I'm going to stand in both of them. I'm not letting either of them go. I'm not ignoring one for the other or the other for the one. I'm holding on to both of them. And I'm waiting. Not passively, I'm actively waiting to see what God is going to do. And of course, Jesus' life was, was an example of this waiting for God, entering as the incarnate Son of God into the despair of the world in which he found himself. One foot in the mud of lament and tragedy and sorrow and violence and the other foot always clinging to God and to his faithfulness and compassion. And you see this most specifically on the cross. And I've cited this, I don't know how many times in these last years. On that cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, recognizing that people need forgiveness. He does not look away from the, from the evil. He does not turn away from it. Pretend it isn't there. Cover it up. 
He looks it right in the eye and he says, Father, forgive them. Here's your compassion. Here's your love. There's no space where your compassion and love and mercy cannot be present, even on this, the worst day in the history of the whole wide world. Your compassion and your love and your mercy and your forgiveness is there. Therefore, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. See that balance, what he's doing? Looking evil right in the eye and commending his spirit to his Father in heaven. Over the last six weeks, I've been um, working uh, with in myself, first of all, but then also with a counselor. Because as you can imagine, um, these months and the changes that are going to be coming up in my life and in the life of Cindy and me are pretty big. I mean, just about everything is changing in a way that I had not expected, in a way that I had not planned, not in the timing that I had thought it would be, and just almost not in any way that I would have, would have chosen or wanted. And so I've been trying to work through that and trying to think through that and trying to, to give it words and, and then somehow, somehow um, wrestle with it. And so my counselor and I have been trying to figure out a way to, to, to put it like into a sentence that then we can use as a jumping off point to do some work. What we came up to was this, came up with was this, and I'm speaking very personally of myself. Um, I have some talents, I have some skills, I have some abilities, I have some experience, I can do some things fairly well. Um, in general, I've worked pretty hard through my whole life. In general, I've chosen the hard way. In general, I've chosen to follow what I think is God's call on my life, even when it wasn't easy. But if that's what he wanted me to do, I was, or we, not just me, we, were going to do it. And on one plane... I look now and says, this is, this is what it's gotten me. I don't mean this is what it's, I mean, this is the situation which I'm in. How do I come to terms with all that's been put into over the last almost five decades with the outcome? Right? And we could say that of our congregation. We're almost seven decades old. And there's people here, and there's lots of people who aren't here, who have poured in talent and energy and time and money and prayers and tears and blood working on the building and working on other things. None of us like the outcome. We wish it weren't. How do we come to terms with that? The answer is, I don't know. I'm working on it. 
But the first step is to name it. If you don't name it, you can't get through it. Right? That's what Lamentatius teaches us. So on the one hand, we name the pain in which we find ourselves, the loss and the grief and the evil. We name it. And on the other hand, we look at Jesus, God incarnate, we see him on that cross taking the, taking the evil of the world upon himself, saying, Father, forgive them. Forgive us for whatever we did that wasn't right. And into your hands I commend my spirit. And we follow him in the way Paul describes it. We, we are, we, Christ lives in us and we in him. We follow him in this process. So we hold both of them. We struggle and we wrestle. Sometimes it's really painful and really hard. Sometimes it's really joyful and hopeful. It, it can go from day to day. But we hold both of them and we live. One foot in the mud and one foot at the foot of the cross. And it doesn't solve a single problem. In a month from now, I won't have this work. doesn't solve that problem. The point is, how can I keep going, serving God, even if it's not wrapped up in a bow in the way that I would like? That's what Lamentations teaches us. Look at the what's gone wrong. And remember that center, those verses. Great is thy faithfulness. Thy compassions never fail. Your mercies are new every morning. And hold those two together as we move on into the future.